Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why some lawmakers say it could be another year before Mississippi has a state lottery. Then we'll hear from a group of students at an inner-city high school changing stereotypes with a mind game. And in our book club, it's award-winning author Colson Whitehead on his novel, The Underground Railroad. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lottery supporters have high hopes a bill would pass the legislature this year. Still, it could be another year or more before Mississippi has a lottery. Some lawmakers say getting the bills to the floor for a vote is a challenge. Legislators in the House and Senate submitted more than 10 bills to create a lottery to fund education and infrastructure. But the measures weren't passed out of committees for further consideration. Democratic Senator Willie Simmons of Cleveland submitted a lottery bill. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier why he thinks there's still opposition. The members and individuals having different opinions about whether a lottery is good or not. You know, the faith-based community um, does not open their arms and just jump up and down about a lottery. We are what is referred to as a Bible Belt state. So as a result of that, uh, we, we don't have the support that other states have had. But I think we're coming around to that. Thank you. Thank you. Republican Senator Philip Moran of Kill was excited at the beginning of the session. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he isn't giving up. One of the things is in this building anything can happen. So we're, we're still optimistic. We'll see. Um, you know, and if it doesn't happen this year, maybe next year. But I'm always hopeful. I think at some point uh, the will of the people, we're up to about 73 percent in the latest poll- polling shows that about 73 percent of the uh, uh, voters in this great state of Mississippi won a lottery. So, I think at some point, maybe later in this, maybe later in the session, maybe next, maybe next year, who knows? But at some point, I think uh, the will of the people is is going to be taken into consideration, and, and at some point, we're going to get a lottery. Disappointed? Well, yes, you know, but but always hopeful, always optimistic. If not today, it'll be tomorrow or next day. At some point, we're going to get one. Thank, Thank you. you so All much. Right. Good deal. Thank you. Democratic Representative Oscar Denton of Vicksburg tells our Desiree Frazier Mississippi voters support a lottery. I wonder why did none of them make it out of committee. And this people of the state of Mississippi overwhelmingly wants this to happen. So, again, we're not doing what the people want us to do. And uh, my city, the city of Vicksburg, is adjacent to Tallulah. So I see constituents all the time going across the bridge, which I'm going to go across there myself today because it's $100 million. <laughs> so, because, uh, so we're losing money. We're losing revenue, and, and, it, and it makes no sense in it. It makes no sense at all, none. What do you think is behind it? I 
That's a good question. I would like for somebody to tell me why we vote on, we just voted on seven alcohol bills, which is bad for people, but we can't vote on one lottery bill. One. You know, I mean, and let the people decide whether or not they want to spend their money. I, I, I don't understand it. I do not understand that. What did the alcohol bills relate to? Uh, most of them were related to making cities uh, resort areas, uh, trying to get some more dry counties wet. Um, and, and, and that's pretty much the gist of it, you know, because, you know, in, in the state of Mississippi, we still have dry counties. So. Well, thank you so much for your time, for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Not a problem. Anytime. Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves and Republican House Speaker Philip Gunn have said they do not support a lottery. Coming up, we'll hear from a group of students at an inner city high school changing stereotypes with a mind game. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next Fresh Air, we talk about special counsel Robert Mueller with Garrett Graff, author of a book about Mueller and his 12-year tenure as FBI director. Graff will discuss how Mueller handled a showdown with President Bush, what his conduct as FBI director can tell us about his handling of the current investigation, and what we might expect him to do if he's fired. Join us. Today at 3 on MPB Think Radio. For MPB's Moments in Black History, we salute Vernon F. Damer, Sr., Damer was the president of the Forest County chapter of the NAACP. On January 9, 1966, Damer led a voter registration drive. Then, in the early morning hours of January 10th, his Hattiesburg home was firebombed. Damer's family managed to escape, but Damer lost his life. Years later, his widow Ellie was elected election commissioner in the same district where her husband was killed for his voting rights advocacy. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. Support for MPB comes from Red Mountain Entertainment. edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A group of Jackson teenagers are breaking stereotypes using a mind game. While the story of a high school chess team traveling the state for tournaments is not rare, some Mississippians are surprised to learn the students are from an inner city public school. This year, the Wingfield High School chess team has been training and participating in tournaments. Some say they're also setting an example. MPB's Ashley Norwood caught up with the team as they prepared to compete in tournaments in Oxford this weekend. Wingfield teacher and chess mentor Elizabeth Thrasher tells her that tells her the team's goal is to win a state championship trophy in March, but costs are adding up. General challenges, number one, um, getting a fully staffed school, fully staffed teachers, and then even with um, a staff that's full, getting teachers to dedicate more of their time after school because things like a chess program or even like an arts program, it takes um, teachers donating their extra time after school to do that. Beyond that, challenges at the school... We used to have a technology initiative where all the freshmen had computers coming in, and all of their state testing is on computer. And now over time, the freshmen don't get computers anymore. A lot of our computers have been damaged or stolen. So the school just doesn't have a whole lot of technology to um, meet the needs of the state requirements, the state testing. So actually, that's how the chess team got started was um, when we do state testing, like around Christmas time, we have to shut down the school for like 
two weeks. You know, just shut it down because so many people have to take their tests on the computer and there's so few computers. So last year, on like the sixth or seventh day of a 10-day shutdown where the kids just have to sit in the classroom all day, six to eight hours a day, I finally just said, oh, you know, because there's only so much math you can teach. I said, does anybody want to just play some chess? And so that's kind of where it got started. We just started bringing out chess boards because there was nothing else to do during these school-wide shutdowns. What are some of the advantages with chess? Uh, can it be therapeutic for students? There's so many benefits. If you start with the intellectual benefits, it helps them to problem solve and analyze the situation. There's mathematical benefits because of the grid on the board and the notation. But social benefits, it teaches you how to be a, a good, you know, a good sportsman, be a good, you know, a, um, a humble winner. And, um, and it teaches you how to not to be a sore loser. They shake hands before and after games. Um, you know, you learn, socially you learn to think before you make a move. So it applies on the chessboard. You know, you want to sit there. We, we have a saying, we say, sit on your hands before you make a move. You know, if you see something real good, sit on your hands, scan the whole board, and then make your move. Well, it, it works in social situations as well. You know, make a, think before you say something. Think before you go and, and act a certain way in a classroom or think before you say something to your mom. You know, it helps you slow down your brain and make the best decision possible. So was this the first time a lot of students played chess? Was it fairly new for them? Yeah, I would say about half of our team learned how to play chess by joining the chess team. The other half, it seems like they kind of knew how to play, just like myself. I, I sort of knew how to play, but I didn't really understand what it took to get good until we all became a team, and then we got a lot of advice from other teams and other coaches on what to do to get better. How does the season work? I'm, I'm sure it's already gotten started. So how does it work, and then where does the Wingfield team rank? Well, the beauty of chess is it's year-round. So tournaments begin in the fall, and the state championship is in March. So there's tournaments all over the state between now and then. And um, until state championships, nothing is – there's no team record. You just, you just train. You show up to tournaments. Everybody, you know, um, is – is accounted for on an individual basis until March 24th. And on March 24th, that's the day that they finally keep score of all the teams and they, and they give out championship trophies. And that's going to be at Mississippi State University. So basically the way it works is we just we travel to a tournament. Um, everybody plays five games. No matter You could win all five or you could lose all five, but everybody plays five games. And then based on your record, you get something called a rating, a chess rating. What are the costs involved with playing the game? So to just play right? You know, you just need a board, which could be as cheap as five or 10 bucks. Um, and then just somebody to sit with you. So all in all, it's a pretty cheap sport to play. But the level to which Wingfield has um, gotten into chess, it's become a little more costly. You know, to go to a tournament, it costs about 10 to $15 for an entry fee for each child to get into the tournament. And then when we travel, you know, the gas to get us there and feeding the kids because tournaments are all day long. So since they're all day long, we got to feed the kids three meals. So yeah, once you add in gas, food, and the entry fee, it costs somewhere around 40 to $50 per child to take them to a tournament. And how do you make the money in order to fund students to take place in the championship? Well, right now, we don't get any funding from the district. I don't know if that's just because I don't know how to access that funding, but right now it's just a club after school, so there's no district funding. We just solicit donations from private citizens. That's, I'll go on social media and make an all-call and say, hey, you know, we're a little short for this tournament. You know, the kids do bring as much of the fees as they can. You know, they really do try to foot their own bill, but at the end of the day, you know, it's just, it's just not enough to cover the whole team. 
One of the car dealerships last fall donated $500. It was from Gene Silas. Gene Silas out there hooked us up from one of the uh, the car dealerships. But $500, you know, that lasted about a tournament and a half. You know, and that, and that was it. And that's all we had. So if those listening would like to donate to the chess team, how could they do that? Uh, right now there's two ways. We have a blue and gold booster club. Um, so if anybody wants to make out a check, if you make it out to the Blue and Gold Booster Club, I mean, you can bring it to Wingfield, care of Beth Rasher or um, the Thompson family. They handle our funds. But if they want to electronically donate, there is a PayPal account that's listed as Wingfield Chess at Yahoo.com through PayPal. So Wingfield Chess is all one word, at Yahoo.com. Is there anything else you would like to add? One of the problems I feel in JPS is that kids are only exposed to chess if they get identified as gifted. Right, So if kids know how to play chess, they usually say, oh, I learned it when I was in the gifted program. And I, I think that's a shame. You know, I think every child should be exposed to chess because it's not about how good the kids could be at chess. It's how good chess could be for them. Elizabeth Thrasher, thank you so much. Thank you. William Smith is a Wingfield High School senior and member of the school's chess team. He tells our Ashley Norwood participation has helped him with life skills. You get to see how other people are thinking. With chess, it is a strategic game, and you can get checkmated very quickly. So you do have to calculate your moves and try to calculate your opponent's moves as well. And on the board, you can see, like, you question why would they make a move like that, and you ask them what what was their plan, and you're bonding with them. With that, it just sounds like what you have to be very attentive, or what are some of the things that you have to do mentally to make sure that you're paying attention? So some people just stare at the board to make sure they're paying attention, but really you just need to relax because if you stay too focused on something, then you're going to miss something else, and you got to look around on the whole board. Do you play any other sports or extracurricular activities in school? Yes, ma'am, I do jiu-jitsu after school. What is it about chess, then, that makes it different from any other sport? See, chess is a mind game. That's the only thing that makes it different. Instead of physical contact with somebody, it's a battle of a mind. With your opponent. How do you apply that to your day-to-day life, your interactions with others or making decisions? Well, the people around me are like my chess pieces. A good or bad move could be like a good or bad decision with a friend or somebody. And the consequences could be the other board reacting upon me. So that's how I play. What do your friends say when you tell them that you're into chess? How do they feel about it? A uh, majority of my friends, they do like chess like me, but other people say they don't know how to play, or chess is a nerdy game when they don't want to learn how to play. Why do you think they think it's a nerdy game? Because they never had the experience. How does it make you feel to not only know how to play, but actually be good at it? It puts a smile across my face, because I don't want to be common with other people. Playing basketball, is playing basketball, football, and all that would be considered normal because it happens so often day to day. However, I play chess. Like you said, not many people play chess, so it is surprising. Tell me what's in store in terms of uh, the championship games and what do you expect? I expect a whole lot of heavy competition. My team and I have been training for a while, like today. We're training. We're having a bit of fun in the back playing four-man's chess. So how do you see chess impacting your life moving forward? The way I see it with life and with the chess board, you have to plan your next move. You don't really know what your opponent's thinking. You can relate that to the future. You don't really know what's going to happen in the future, but you can try to plan around it to help you out. So that's what I try to do. 
Wingfield High School senior William Smith with MPB's Ashley Norwood. Coming up in our book club, it's award-winning author Colson Whitehead on his novel, The Underground Railroad. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from Red Mountain Entertainment, presenting the Dave Matthews Band live at the Brandon Amphitheater on Tuesday, May 29th. Tickets available Friday, February 2nd at 10 a.m. More information at Ticketmaster.com. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Coming up on the next Mississippi Roads, it's foods of a different kind. We hike through the woods with a forester who forges. It's the Hot Tamale Festival in Greenville, and a twist on an old favorite, and a farm in Collins for people, peanuts, and pumpkins. I'm Walt Crazy. Join me on the next Mississippi Roads. Thursday at 7 on MPB Television. Coming up on this week's Season Pass on MPB Think Radio, there's a little something for everyone. We'll reminisce with a Mississippi Sports Hall of Famer about the 1959 Team of the Decade. We'll learn about the Olympic sport of curling from the Mid-South Ice House Curling Club president. And we'll hear from the Long Beach High School coach about the end-of-season bowling tournaments going on. All that and more coming up on this week's Season Pass. This morning at 10 on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Fannie Lou Hamer. The civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer is known for her words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, during her testimony at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. But the Mississippi native would also lend her voice to many freedom songs during the civil rights movement. Fannie Lou Hamer was a true champion of the people, and we salute her leadership. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Colson Whitehead is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Underground Railroad. It won the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 2017 and the National Book Award. It was also named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review and others. The novel about a young slave who has escaped a Georgia plantation and is heading north. An outcast even among her fellow Americans, Cora embarks on a harrowing flight from one state to the next, not knowing what she'll find at each stop. The novel has has been called the tale of one woman's will to escape the horrors of bondage and a powerful meditation on the history we all share. Whitehead tells us how he came to write The Underground Railroad. I think I've always just tried to find projects that appeal to me, no matter how weird they sound. You know, definitely when I was writing The Intuitionist, and I kept saying to my friends, oh, it's about elevator inspectors, just like, there goes Colson with this crazy pipe dream. I, I guess when I got the MacArthur, it just seemed... Like they were saying, you're a weird guy, just keep doing it. You know, keep doing what you're doing. And so I guess I've been asked, like, was it a burden? Like, did you feel like you had to live up to something? And the answer was no. I just just felt they were saying, we like what you're doing. Here's some funding so you can keep doing it. We'd like to see what you have coming up next. And that's the intention, I believe, of that award. It's completely unrestricted. So it's for you exactly so you can continue doing what you're doing. It is, yeah, and, and it was a great couple of years. I mean, at that point, I even had health insurance, so <laughs> I hadn't had in a very long time. So, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was very nice. 
we come to 2016 and you release this book, The Underground Railroad, and it wins the Pulitzer Prize. It wins the Book Award. It wins other awards. What did that mean to you or did it surprise you at all? Did you think you were writing a Pulitzer Prize winning book? No, I mean, I, you know, I when I was writing, I, I thought I was doing my usual thing, not trying to screw up a good idea. And of course, there are good days when I was writing it, and bad days when I was writing it. But um, you know, I was trying to do you know, the best I could. I did realize that once I gave it to my wife, and and then my agent and editor, that you know, their responses were so enthusiastic. And then I went to booksellers really early. I realized that people were reacting reacting to it much differently than they had to my other my previous books. And so. That sort of told me that I'd done something different. In this case, the Underground Railroad is a real railroad underground, like a subway. And that has to change the dynamic of what is or could be considered a traditional story about slaves escaping through the Underground Railroad to the north and and all of the angst that goes along with that. What does turning that Underground Railroad into a literal railroad do to tell the story, right? Well, you know, you know, before there was core, before there was any any real structure of the story, they were just making this metaphor into something real. And so, from this very you know beginnings, it's not going to be historically accurate. You know, I'm, I'm, there's a fantastic element, and that allowed me to do a lot of different things. Uh, there's a traditional slave narrative: a slave escapes, starts a new life in, in the north. And this one, you know, once she gets on the train, we're in a different alternative space, and allowed me to move different historical events around, whether it was forced sterilization, making links between eugenics in the United States and eugenics that are Nazi Germany. For me, what was very exciting once I got to page 72, when she gets underground, is that the book starts rebooting every 60 pages and, and has a different way of interpreting history, you know, by moving things around and juxtaposing different events. And, and so it becomes not just the linear story of a slave running north, but a, about America and changing concepts of race over time. But there's also that element that it is a story restarting because Cora escapes. She goes to one location that she thinks she's safe. She's not. She goes to another location. She thinks she's safe. She's not. And that continues several times over. Sure. That's sort of the dynamic of running away. You, know, you find one safe harbor in one state, I uh, hope you get a little further north, 100 miles, you hide in someone else's house. Someone takes you in their, in their carriage or wagon and takes you another 100 miles. And you, you're never safe until you're, you're finally in the north. And then even then, you know, the fugitives of slave law, people like Ridgeway can still kind of snatch you back. And so that, that sort of suspense structure is built into the, I think, into the life and death stakes of uh, a slave's escape. Talk about a slave catcher, if you would, because there were certain laws that applied uh, your slave runs away, you hire someone to bring back your property, and that's what a, a slave was, property. And up to like 1848 or 49, before the Fugitive Slave Act, if you were in the North in a free state, you're basically free. But it was legal for, for a slave catcher to snatch you out of your house. And then there are slave states, uh, new territories entering the Union. Would they be slave? Would they be, would they be free? One of the compromises was that it was a Fugitive Slave Act, and so you could have been living 30 years in Massachusetts, having run away from your master 30 years before, start a family, have a job, and you were still property, and it allowed people to come into the North and, and snatch you back. And so that basically meant only Canada was a really safe place, and that's the last 12 years before the Civil War. How does this book most relate today? I, I can't really say that. I think it's up to people's interpretations. Part of the book is about white supremacy and capitalism. And if you, if we elect a white supremacist president like Donald Trump, 
then obviously it has a different kind of resonance. If you know there are passages on slave patrollers who were the sort of police force in the South before there was a real police force, and it was their job to catch runaway slaves, but also stop any black person they saw, free your slave, and demand to see their papers. There's resonance with stop and frisk policing policies now. You know, I, I sort of say if you write about race and racism in 1850, you end up talking about race and racism now because a lot of those forces are still powerful today. Colson Whitehead is the author of The Underground Railroad, which is now in paperback. Colson, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.